This morning we're going to be in John chapter 16. And what we saw the first portion of John was that the Lord uh, explained to his disciples this new relationship that he had or that they were going to have with God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Things were going to change. So he had to explain that to his disciples. The crucifixion is impending. It's coming up soon. Uh, And I think what's interesting to note, too, is the many ways he spoke about the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit did work in the lives of men and women of the Old Testament and certainly the New Testament, uh, but there was going to be something, some things that they really needed to understand about that relationship with the Holy Spirit. We're going to see some of that today. Uh, And if you, maybe you've been in church for decades, if, uh, if the God's word is not a staple of the church's diet, you might not really know much about the Holy Spirit. Um, actually, many make the mistake of over-focusing on the Holy Spirit when, according to Jesus in John 15, the Holy Spirit's primary function was to point to Jesus, not to showboat himself. So it's very important that we understand the word because it eliminates those um, fringe kind of beliefs that are not grounded in Scripture. Now, what we did find out uh, about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment. Now that's very important because what does it say about a ministry today that purposely evades or skirts the subject of sin and righteousness and judgment? Hell, the cross, sin, our need for a savior. You know, that's offensive. It doesn't fit in with society. So we're going to kind of put that on the side. How can that be an effective ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit's primary function to the world is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What I do want to do is read an article to you this morning. It's a few minutes. I'm not going to read the whole article. It's going to be the second half of it. How many of you have heard of Dr. Keith Abloh, psychiatrist? Okay. He's written some very good articles really criticizing the society we live in today. And I'm going to try to tie in what he says with what the Bible says. Now, he's wrote another article called, Are We Raising a Generation of Deluded Narcissists? Now, I would add to that a really good article that we're not talking just about Generation Z or Y or wherever we're at. We're also speaking about people my age and older. This is where society is turning. Whereas the World War II generation, they sacrificed themselves for their children and grandchildren. Our society, young and old, is sacrificing our children and our grandchildren's future so that we could have things. So I want to read this article to you and just a little background. Raise your hand. How many of you are familiar with Manti Teo, right? The Notre Dame uh, famous linebacker going for the Heisman Trophy, right? So I hear a lot of grumbling there. So apparently a lot of you know who he is. Well, there was some very weird things that happened to him in the last few years. He supposedly had a relationship with a, a woman who he never met and uh, for three years. Uh, it was a, a pretty much an online relationship. And supposedly, this girl was a hoax. She never existed. Uh, you know, if, if you remember, he spoke to journalists, and he was going for the Heisman Trophy. And, you know, sports is very important in ability, but the Heisman Trophy winners also, they take into account a person's story or their personal life. Uh, so the question is, was Manti Teo really duped, or did he have something to do with this so that he could look better in the eyes of the world? And he became very famous through this relationship online. Admitted later that he did mislead some of the reporters and embellish the story more than it was. So that's the, the background here. And Keith Abloh writes about this, and he says this. 
He says, either way, Teo is the poster boy for a phenomenon I have been writing about for years in which threatens our culture in a dramatic way. The erosion of reality. Now, this is for every generation this morning. The erosion of reality and embrace of fiction via social networking, reality TV, and technology. The same forces that have fueled the creation of a generation of deluded narcissists with more on the way are hijacking our attention and emotions and making us devote them to false people and false stories. The tale of Teo is a close relative to that of Balloon Boy, the fake story of a boy who was supposedly adrift inside a capsule beneath a homemade air balloon when he was actually home the whole time. But the tale of Teo is also a close relative of Twitter and Facebook themselves, which encourage people to craft versions of themselves that are more attractive than the truth, with hundreds of thousands of friends, most of whom don't even know them and have never met them, and with hundreds of followers, despite the fact that they aren't famous enough to have followers and never will be. It's pretty hard-hitting. There have always been liars and cheats and frauds and fools, but the forces forming such people are more potent than ever, and their fakery and fraud can now go viral via the Internet and other technologies in ways previously impossible. We are now afflicted by fiction in our lives as never before, with our very sense of what is true and what is false now threatened. And that may be the most toxic, terrifying reason why we are having trouble solving crises like the national debt, the threat posed by Iran, and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and the obvious links between psychiatric illness, our shattered mental health system, and violent crime like school shootings. He pretty much ties a lot of things together here. Social media, reality TV, and technology have infected and intoxicated us so that we won't, or even worse, we can't face facts anymore. Christianity is real. God wants a real relationship with us and with each other, not fake relationships. Two more paragraphs. Even if we were inclined to look at our real personal and cultural problems, there's an army of doctors ready to write prescriptions for Prozac and its relatives within minutes of visiting them. Very brave coming from a psychiatrist himself. Even if we were inclined to meditate on the real core of our personal and cultural issues, religion is under assault as never before. Even if we were inclined to find the real core of our personal and cultural problems, street drugs, including marijuana and opiate pain relievers, are easier to find, easier than ever, in fact, and in wider use. In a lesser or greater way, we are now vulnerable to, or already afflicted by, the delusion disease, the great psychological epidemic that has ever faced our nation or our species, which is destroying a generation or two, and which most recently catapulted Manti Tails from football great with his cleats firmly on the ground into a flight of pure fantasy that swept millions along with it. Now, why do we preach sin, righteousness, and judgment? A lot of churches in America are not preaching that anymore. And I've said this before, you show me a pagan society with negative influences, and I'll show you a church in that society that is getting negatively influenced by the pagan society. That's where we are in Western Christianity. That's why sin, righteousness, and judgment must be preached. Now, as I look around, I see some families that have come from other churches in which narcissists, 
those that have been afflicted by Munchausen's or still do it, passive-aggressives, attention-seekers, and those with borderline personality disorders have got together and have helped to destroy the church. And you fled, and your church is burning somewhere. This is what we're dealing with in American society. And I'll tell you this, that when the rapture comes, the church will still be around, and pews will still be filled with people who aren't saved. Right? So what happens is, this is setting the, the, sta the stage for the great delusion. Delusion upon delusion, where the populace will believe the great lie, perpetrated by the Antichrist, where God is going to allow it to happen, and mankind is going to be stuck with himself, ruling himself. But it's happening now. Make no bones about it. Anyone who preaches to you that the church is going to change the world has not read their Bible. According to the scripture, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. In Nazi Germany, there were two churches. There was the state church that were favorable to the Nazis, and there was the confessing church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others, that fought the establishment in preaching and in trying to change lives. And guess what? The state church was the biggest thorn in the flesh to the real church. And look what happened to that society. We have the same issue. We have churches today that are just there either for, for, you know, to make money or to fill the pews, but are not there to tell the people the truth. So I wanted to make this point from last Sunday about the importance of preaching sin, righteousness, and judgment. We must be a purified people we can't look just like the people outside of the church that are being deluded by the things that Dr. Abloh is speaking about. Are we ready to make a difference? I hope so. Today, as we continue and we, we wrap up the last several verses of this chapter, this is not an objurgation or a rebuke to the disciples. Jesus is comforting his disciples. He wants to give them the true peace. He wants to instruct them as he wants to instruct us as well. So we can learn from this as well. So let's jump in, in verse 16. Jesus said, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while. We do not know what he is saying. So up until three plus years, I love this. The disciples are still questioning. They're still, what does he mean? What's he talking about? I just love that. Uh, but he, he basically, he's shifting back and forth between a little while you won't see me. Keep telling you about the crucifixion. He tries to hit it from many different angles so they understand but then a little while after that, you will see me. I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay, so the disciples will see him again. You see, history is easy for us to look back. And, and I was guilty of it for many years, looking back at the disciples and say, gee, couldn't he pick some guys with some common sense? I mean, what's with these guys? Three years and they still don't get it. They should be like supermen. But the truth is, we're no different. We have to learn to trust God too. And remember this. The disciples gave up probably a lot more than American Christians are willing to give up for the Lord. They gave up their jobs, their careers, they left their families, they left their futures to follow Jesus. And now he's saying, oh, by the way, they're going to kill me. Wait a minute, what about us? Right? Self-preservation. Wouldn't we say the same thing? Lord, what are you talking about? 
So it's something where you know something's coming and it's, it's the truth, but you don't want to believe it, right? But they had to trust him. And we need to trust him too because there are going to be times in our lives we're going to have crises as well. We're going to be in a position as the disciples were and say, well, now what do I do? Wow, I really have to trust God now. I really have to put feet on my faith because it's game time and I'm in trouble. 19. So Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will be able to take from you. So my question is, do you think Jesus answered them, like, directly? Does he ever? <laughs> he would be, I, I kind of amused to myself, he would be difficult today under cross-examination or in deposition. But we do the same thing, don't we? We go into prayer, and we have our mind made up. Lord, I just have this one question that I need you to answer for me. And we go to prayer. And maybe God tells us something different. Maybe he doesn't answer it the way we need it to be answered. Maybe he turns the spotlight back on us instead of the other person that's given you a hard time that you're praying that he would kind of remove or have a move to another state. So we also can have those frustrations where we ask God something, but he tells us what we want to hear. I mean, he tells us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. That's important. So in verse 20, there's two different reactions from, uh, from those that see the Lord's death. Number one, to the followers, they're going to be sorrowful. To the world, they're going to be happy, right? Because that light has come into the world, and they don't want that righteousness. We gave some examples last Sunday where you might be in a situation, and you might be portraying that light of Christ and that righteousness. You're trying to do the right thing, and you get grief for it. Could be from your own family, your friends, your coworkers, your schoolmates. You're trying to do the right thing. Okay, but it's the it isn't you, it's the righteousness that's coming through you that the world has a problem with because they're not ready for that. John three tells us that the light came into the world and the world did not comprehend it. The world did not want that light. No, we're not ready for that, to be for it to be shined on what we're doing here on this darkness. So this is what's going on. He says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Why? Because at the resurrection, it's all going to make sense. Now, Jesus draws a parallel here to childbirth. Does a woman rejoice in labor? No. <laughs> I see some of you shaking your head. Uh-uh. <laughs> but when the child comes out, oh, wow, thank God. What a relief. Time to sleep. Because there's a baby born into the world. The disciples were going to be sorrowful, but they're but it was going to be changed into joy at the resurrection. Similarly, you can look at the Lord's labor being at the cross, you know? Uh, and he finally, when he died on the cross, he really literally gave birth to mankind. Well, you say, well, people have been living and dying for thousands of years. But he gave them that opportunity to actually reach heaven, you know, by dying on the cross. So that was, it, figuratively, the whole world was birthed through him uh, dying on the cross. Now, here's what's fascinating, is that the labor 
okay? You, you look at the labor of, of the mother with child, and then you look at the child coming out. Did God change the, the, the circumstances, or did he really change the position between the mother and the child? In one vein, they're together. The child is inside, and in the other sense, that they, the child comes out, and they're separated, but he changed their position, giving relief probably to the mother and the child. Now, I would say this, too, that there's many trials in our lives. The disciples went through trials, but we do, too. And it's not always God changing our circumstances, but sometimes he's changing our hearts and our own attitudes. See, that's the problem. When we go to prayer and we pray for something to go away, we often have to look in the mirror and say, all right, Lord, I hate to ask this, and I'm hesitant, but is there something in me that has to change just a little bit through this trial? There's got to be a transformation. What does the world say? The world says, I don't like my husband. I'm getting divorced. I don't like my wife. These kids, why can't I have better kids than this? They're always giving me a hard time. Can't you kids just be obedient and listen? You know? Or my finances. If I could just have another $10,000, boy, my life would be changed incredibly. This is what the world says. Do whatever you have to do to make your life better. Remove the outward circumstances. But what the Bible says is that our heart needs to be transformed so that we go through this. We can go through it with a whole different light and a different attitude. But that, that TV preacher told me that I could just have anything I want. Gimme, 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 God. Gimme, 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 gimme. And, and it'll just dump, be dumped into my lap. No, no. Now, I don't want to use, uh, I'll use Daniel's three friends, and I don't want to use their Babylonian names. I'd rather use their Hebrew names. You know, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. Did God put a, a ramp over the fiery furnace and let them walk over it? Anybody? No, he didn't. What did he do? He allowed those three men to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Please, God didn't scoop them out of it. God didn't put a big fire extinguisher on the fiery furnace. Those men were in the fiery furnace. But God was in that fiery furnace with them. Brothers and sisters, we can't always think that God is going to take us out of the fiery furnace. Sometimes for a time we need to be in there, but he will be in there with us. And I submit to you, I believe that not a hair on their eyebrows was singed in that fiery furnace. He was with them through the fiery furnace. We are going to go. We're going to be thrown into them. But we have to trust God that he's there with us, right? We have to be standing with him side by side because that's what he wants. Jesus took the cross the most offensive and loathsome object to the Roman culture, and he changed it. He transformed the cross into an object of love and grace. How did he do that? If you ever saw those crosses, and they're still, they're still there. You know, they've still been preserved after all these years. And if you were there at the time 2,000 years ago, and you looked at any one of these crosses, they were all gnarly and ragged and dried out. And there was blood splattered on those crosses in human hair and pieces of flesh on that cross. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But what did Jesus do? When he died on that cross, he showed us how much he loved us. He took that ugly, loathsome object and turned it into a symbol that we wear on necklaces now. Why? Because it's a symbol of love and grace. When I look at that cross, I don't think about the pieces of flesh. I think about my Lord dying for my sins. Amen? All right, we're all awake this morning. Praise the Lord. You're not, yeah, you're not drowsy from those antihistamines, you know what I'm saying? 
But this is what God does. Sometimes we need to stop fighting God, let God be God, and let God do what he needs to do in our lives. We give up our will and our self-centeredness and say, Lord, if you got to change me, because I keep going through this situation with this person and that person and money and, and, and you know, all these feelings, but, but I'm the common denominator, Lord, change me. Change me. And that's a sign of maturity when we say that. So let's look at labor. Uh, in the Old Testament, a woman in travail was also used as an analogy or a parable. Uh, we see Jesus use it here. I want to read Romans 8.18. I, I have a few verses in Romans. Another picture. It's amazing. God designed labor so that the children could be born into this world. We were all a result of labor. Everybody's sitting here. Uh, but he uses that example sometimes to make a spiritual truth. Romans 8.18. The Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wow, Lord, you want to do that through me? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, everything God made, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So you got this picture of growth, or birth pangs again, even with the creation. You know, this frequency and intensity until God makes everything new and everything rests and everything is perfected. It's coming. I'll say this as well, that, that birth pangs are also used to describe what, what we're going through in this world. In other words, when we look at end times prophecy, what we find is that a few years ago, my son did a, he did a report on earthquakes. So I said, oh, I'll help you. I like geology and tectonic plates. And as I start going through the study on earthquakes, I was more into the project than he was. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, this is, the Bible says this. And it spoke about the frequency intensity. Don't just think about the United States. Think about Chile. Think about Central America. Think about Iran. Think about China. There was recently one there. So everything's shifting on these fault lines. Uh, somebody, a geologist, said that the earth, if you really took a look at it and understood it, the earth almost looks like a hard-boiled egg that you drop too many times and there's just cracks everywhere. It's, it's coming apart. So frequency and intensity, earthquakes, tsunamis. Frequency and intensity, tsunamis. Yes, there's a reprieve, and then it starts up again. Social ills, frequency and intensity. Do you think that some politician's going to pass a law and outlaw any of these school shootings? You can forget about it. That's fantasy. That's fantasy, um, because you could say any mass murder is illegal, and you have all these laws, and somebody events, eventually does it again. But what they're not doing is they're not looking at the root of society's problems. They're looking, listen, when you've got to pick up a gun or a knife or a club, it's at the end of the road. You've already planned this out. You've already thought about that. You've had that hate well up in you. You've had that hurt. You've allowed Satan to, to enter you and take over you and to suggest things to you. So once you pick up that implement, it's the end of the road. We're looking at the end of the road. We should be looking at the beginning of the road in society, and we're not doing it. Why? Because it's too difficult. It's too difficult. So this frequency intensity like birth pangs. 
verse 22. I'll read it again. Therefore, you now, disciples, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will be able to take from you. No one. That's available to everyone this morning. Amen. 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 Nehemiah 8 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now, let me just say this. If you're a believer, okay, because this applies to non-believers, it applies to believers. We can all get something out of this. It applies to mature believers. If you're a believer and your joy, your joy comes from recreation, education, vacation, spending money, buying stuff, you need to repent. And don't blame your husband or your wife or your kids or your church or your pastor for your problems because you made them. Because you left God in the past. I see some of you with looks of horror. Yes, I'm saying that. Because Jesus says that our joy comes from two things. Number one, John 15 and 16, from knowing what Jesus did on the cross. Is that sufficient for us this morning to know that when we stand before God, if we die today of a massive heart attack and we stand before our God, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Oh, that's something to sing about, isn't it? Okay? So number one, just the fact that we can get into heaven, not on our own merits, not being afraid every day God's going to be mad at me, that because of the, the crucifixion and the resurrection that we can enter into the kingdom and God can open his arms and just hug us and say, oh, I couldn't wait for you to get here. That's number one. Well, it gets better because two, as we continue in John chapter 15 with the branch and the vine, we, we can have a relationship with, with the Lord while we're here. We don't sit around going, boo-hoo, I can't wait till it's over, I can't wait till the Lord takes me home. We can actually have life and life more abundantly here. So not only does he give us hope at the end of the road, but he also gives us hope right now where we stand in the timeline and the linear timeline of life. So these are the two things that give us joy. Everything else in life has to be prioritized. Otherwise, we will be walking miserable. We have to change our priorities and not let this article and the things that are going in society jade us to where that becomes of the utmost importance and most, uh, most importance. Jesus also says in verse 22, I love this, no one will be able to take that joy from you. Why? Because the joy is in your heart. If they take your heart, you're dead, right? You're done where you stand. However, if you base your joy on stuff of the world and material things, and somebody takes that from you, do you think you're going to be angry and unhappy and depressed? Yes. Because you made your foundation the stuff of the world. I just hope that as brothers and sisters, we want to take it to the next level. We want to become deeper Christians, not shallow Christians. Not like what's going on in the world. Pastor Richard Wombrand, you ever hear about him? After World War II, he had a Jewish background. He became a believer in Jesus, became a pastor. This man was amazing. When communism took over Romania... He stood up and said, communism is against Christianity. And again, <laughs> World War II, the state church, post-World War II, the state church. Why does the church keep doing this? There's always an infiltration from the inside. Oh, let's just go with what the government says. Well, what if the government's preaching that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Should we go with that? 
So one brand stood up to the communists when his fellow church pastors were cowering. And they took him. They put him in solitary confinement. He, he spent 14 years in prison. They beat his feet so bad to the bone that when he would do speaking engagements, when he was finally let go, he had to sit in it. He couldn't stand. He couldn't walk anymore. He testified before Congress and took his shirt off. And you saw all the whipping marks and the, and the scars on his body and beating for them to say, deny your savior for 14 years. And he didn't do it. He lost his wife. She went to a labor camp for three years. They took away his son. They took away his home. They took away his money. They took away his pride. They took everything away from him. But you know what they couldn't take? They couldn't take away his joy that resided in his heart or they would have had to kill him to do it. And you know what he did when he got out of prison? All those sermons in solitary confinement, not a Bible, not nothing, from memory. He, he made these sermons, like 60, 70 of them. He had such a great memory when he got out of prison, he put it all on paper and then he did his sermons based on what he suffered while in solitary confinement. Do you want a joy that's lasting? Or do you want a joy that's based on your circumstances? Hey, it feels good when we get stuff. It makes us, gives us a little bit of a rush and people pay attention to us. But that stuff doesn't last. We need to have that joy autonomous of what's going on in the world and what surrounds us. 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what is he speaking about here? This transition. All right, there's going to be applications for us. There's going to be direct applications for the disciples. So in other words, in other words, in that day you will ask me nothing. Why? Because you'll ask the Father in Jesus' name. That's just the way we do it. When we pray, we pray to God and we say in Jesus' name. It's not a postage stamp. You know, it's not the send button on the email and the computer or the okay on the text on the phone. It means in the, in the character of the Lord when we pray. We pray according to what his will is. He continues, until now you have asked nothing in my name, but asking you receive and your joy will be filled. So in other words, while he, they were with Jesus, they didn't pray like that to the Father in a sense because Jesus took care of all their needs. So this was going to be a transition for the disciples, and we need to understand that. But I will tell you this, your joy may be full. Why? Another reason, because of answered prayer. Amen to that? Amen. <laughs> when you pray and God answers your prayers, hey, that is awesome. may not be exactly the way you asked for it, but it's, the, it's, the good, it's good for us because he knows what's good for us. This is what I love about the Lord is that, is that one of the things I pray about, one of the things I thank God for when I pray is, Lord, I'm thankful that you hear me now. Amen. It could be 1230 in the morning. It could be three o'clock in the morning. It could be six in the morning. It could be five in the afternoon. There's never a busy time on the phone. You know, thank you, Lord, that your ear is always inclined to me. I never get an answering machine. I never get beep. This is the angel Gabriel. The father's not in right now. <laughs> He's in a very important meeting, but please leave a message. Your phone call is very important to him. <laughs> phone loops, man. We'll keep you to call you back or you can listen to this horrible music for the next 20 minutes until somebody answers you. Isn't that amazing that at any moment we can turn to the Lord, we don't even have to look up, and you just try it. In your mind, you can say, Lord, are you listening to me? He hears everything you're saying, right? That's a, that's, that's a blessing. So, first, uh, actually three different, and just to recap the, 
the uh, scriptures because joy really comes in heavily starting with 15 and 16. So the three examples, uh, John 15, 11, joy remains in us. Our joy may be full when we understand and partake of that close relationship with the Lord that's available to everyone in this room this morning and forevermore. Two, in chapter 16, 20 and 22, sorrow is turned to joy and joy can't be taken when we're faced with the truth of the resurrection. And three, in chapter 16, verse 24, our joy may be full again in response to answered prayer or communion with God. Okay, 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. So why is he speaking uh, figuratively to them? Well, number one, it was prophetic that he would, you know, the Old Testament said that he would speak into these figurative language. Many times he did speak plainly to the disciples, but, um, you know, we can only speculate. The parables were something that if you really didn't care to hear about, what God had to say, you would listen to the nice parables and go about your day. But those that really were interested in the things of God would ask Jesus, well, what did that mean? What did this mean? So uh, there was a little bit of an effort given uh, on the the part of of the hearer. I would say this as well. God gives us what we need when we need it. So, okay, let's just use one of these pastors that was murdered in Colombia by the the FARC guerrillas, the FARC guerrillas. Uh, many of them were murdered, a lot of widowed, a lot of pastors' uh, wives, widows in Colombia. What if, you know, 25 years later, you know, the guy's rejoicing, they're executing him, and he's going to be with his Lord, and, and he's joyful. You look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see the same thing, and you say, wow, that's amazing. That's got to be a work of the Spirit. However, on Salvation Day, let's go back 25 years, do you think God could say to that pastor, so, by the way, um, right around the 15-year mark, up until 25 years, they're going to take everything from you, you're going to be separated from your wife and the family, and then they're going to execute you. Well, if you heard that, you'd be running as far the other direction as possible. Because we can't hear that. Jesus even said to his disciples, there are things that I need to tell you, but you can't bear them right now. But little by little, the Holy Spirit's going to minister to you, and you're going to start getting it. You're going to become a pillar of the church. I got to tell you the truth that when I got saved, if God would have shown me the things I was going to go through, even in ministry, even with the loss of friendships, even with the pain of of loss, different types of loss, a sacrifice on on my family at times, I would have said, no way, I'm not doing this. But little by little, the Lord gave my wife and I what we needed to hear. He spoon-fed it to us. And then he started giving us the real big chunks later on. Uh, and we could digest them a little bit more. So that's God is a gentleman. He's just going to give us, he's not going to pound us when we get saved. Uh, and he's not going to pound us at all. You know, if we're willing, he'll use us. If we're not, he won't. It's pretty much, he's not going to trample over our free will. 27, he says, the father loves you because you loved me. And, and this is another really way of saying that no one gets to the father except through the son. The disciples needed to know when Jesus was physically taken from them, they, they needed love. They needed comfort. Right? I told you about all the sacrifice that they made. This was very important. So Jesus was now introducing this concept to them that, you know, God really loves you. 
You know, he, he wants an, a relationship with you individually. And even though I'm going to be taken away, he's going to provide for you. And this morning, whatever you're going through in life, you also need to know that the Father loves you. And Jesus has provided that love through his sacrifice at the cross. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. Now, some of us come from religions where uh, all you heard was God is angry with you. You're going to hell if you do this. You're going to hell if you do that. That's not a reflection of who God is. When we're under the blood, our sins are covered. There's forgiveness. There's repentance. God isn't up there scowling at us, waiting us for us to step out of line so he could kick us. It's not what he does. He loves us. You know? And we all need to know, including me this morning, that God loves me. I remember an East Coast pastor's conference where you, know, you hear different teachings. One pastor had the courage to get up there and say in front of a sea of pastors, you guys need to know that God loves you. I don't, I don't think everybody here is really getting that, but you need to know that. I thought that was courageous, and that, that stuck with me. So there are promises in the scripture that we can claim for ourselves. That's why this is the living word. He didn't love Matthew and Luke and Mark and John any more than he loves everybody sitting here. So understand that. 29. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and leave me alone. And yes, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So a little presumptuous from the disciples, a little reality check from the Lord. Right? I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's not get too big for our britches. Not, let's not think that... God really has to use me because I'm something special. We get to be used. Got a little overconfident, the disciples, but the Lord knew their frame, and he knows our frame as well. So then my question to you is, so can you have faith? Can you believe in Jesus? Can you promise him that you're going to be there and then completely blow it? Sure. We do it all the time, don't we? But God is always there for the restoration process. God doesn't leave us in our failures. God sees us for the things that we could be. When he looked at Gideon, Gideon was cowering. He was terrified of Israel's enemies. And and God basically said to him, you mighty man of God. I could picture Gideon going, is somebody here? Is somebody going to help me? Where is that mighty man of God? He's like, Gideon, it's you. I'm, not the, I'm, I'm scared, I'm terrified. But I could see you, Gideon, for what you're going to be. I would say to you this morning, don't look in the mirror and stay in the place of failure. Stop looking at your past. Stop looking at your present. See yourself for the way God sees you. God sees you as a finished work of what he can do in your life, of how he can use you. Man, that should be the best inspirational understanding that you can have that the god of all creation wants to use me little old me yes he does yes he does verse 33 the last verse he says these things i have spoken to you that in me in me the greek is very explicit and in me 
you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, we can only be in the world or in Jesus, not at the same time, because they're like oil and water. If we're in the world, we're not in Jesus. If we're in Jesus, we can't be in the world. Can we? It's kind of like the rock, paper, scissors principle. The world is the scissors. It's just constantly cutting you, cutting you, cutting you, cutting you. Now, I really, in my heart, I really feel for young ladies in this society. I think you guys are the ones that are most being assaulted by images. Yes, the men are too, but the, what the society's vision of what a young lady should be, they're always cutting at you, cutting at you, cutting at you. Change your hair, change your face, change the way you look. You know, get surgery, get this, get that. It's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. So this is what the world does. But in Jesus, he made you. He has no problem with the way you look. He wants to work on your heart. So the rock comes and crushes the scissors. There's no paper in this instance. So my question to you is, where do you find your peace? Believer, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, believer... Where do you find your peace? Because there's the world's peace, which is a false peace. And it may feel good for a while, but eventually it's going to take out your legs from under you. The Antichrist even, you know, we look at this world and uh, it's a mess. I don't care if it's the United States, the United Nations, Europe, any of the so-called leaders of the world. They're not going to fix the problems in the world. However, the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to do a little dealing, a little backdoor dealing, a little, you know, um, you know, bait and switch. And he's going to set up a situation where there is peace in the world. And they're going to say, who is like the beast? Who can make war with the beast? He even gets what's looked at as a head wound and he survives it. And the whole world falls down and worships this man. Finally, there's peace. But what they don't know is sudden destruction is coming upon them. This is in our future. Wouldn't that be interesting if you don't know the Lord and you looked on the news today and they said, the whole world is at peace. You'd be like, wow. It actually would probably make you feel good inside. It would play with your emotions. Your endorphins would raise. There's not going to be any poverty anymore. Everyone's at peace. There's no more war. Everyone's laying down their weapons. But it's going to be a false peace. Individually as well, as you walk through this world, the world will offer you a false peace. Just get this done to yourself. Just get that retirement plan. Just make these changes to yourself, and you're going to be happy. You'll see. Well, how long is it going to last? It's it's a false peace. We have to be in him, though. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. We need to be attached to the vine, not a casual relationship. Joy and peace have to be on his terms, not our own. The Lord explained to the disciples that their lives were going to change. However, he was going to set the conditions forth that would, re- that would allow the retention of their peace. Now, in our lives, things are going to change as well. Maybe you're sitting here saying, you know, Pastor Joe, everything's been good for the last few years. I- my life is great. Listen, it's like spinning the wheel, you know what I'm saying? I mean, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Anything can change. Your life can change dramatically. But through those circumstances, the Lord wants you to retain that peace that's in your heart that nobody can steal, that your joy may be full. Lastly, lastly, 
they were going to fail. One of them already did. He went to the religious leaders earlier. The other 11 were going to fail miserably as well. But what, what, what God says, let's read this again, is these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's a done deal. He didn't even go to the cross yet. But he knew, he had the foresight to know he had overcome the world. The, 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 the road was set. The betrayal was happening. The arrest was going to happen in a few hours. He was going to go to the cross. Nothing was going to stop that. He said, I have overcome the world. In the previous uh, message that we covered earlier in John, he said that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. He's already done. It was a fatal blow, like it said back in Genesis. I, you will have a blow to, to his heel, but he will put a blow to your head, okay? And that's what's going on. But see, God didn't write this to fail, failed men. He didn't write this to failures. He, he wrote this to victorious men with the assumption that they were going to do better. They weren't going to betray the Lord in the last verse, but they were going to overcome that. And Jesus said, I overcame the world. So believe in me, you're going to have that peace, you're going to have that joy. You're also, by proxy, you're going to overcome the world, guys. And this is what waits for them. So I will say this to you as well before we close, is that God sees you for what he can do in you. I don't care who you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care what your financial situation is. I don't care how you think you messed up your whole life at, at 16 years old. God can do something incredible, but you've got to let him to do it. So as we look at this, God was ministering to men that were not failures, that were overcomers. And this morning, for everyone sitting here in these pews, you're overcomers as well. And God is ministering to you with the understanding that though you may blow it, that you're going to be restored and God's going to do a great thing to you, for you. So let that encourage you this morning and let's pray.